Welcome to our next episode on Diologi Patristica, the podcast of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. So in this episode, Coleman Ford and myself, Sean Wilhite, uh, sit down with Professor Lynn Kohick of Wheaton College to discuss topics regarding uh, the New Testament and earliest Christianity. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Yeah, we're really glad to be here uh, this year, 2015, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, at the uh, annual meeting of Society of Biblical Literature. And we're sitting down today with uh, Lynn Kohick uh, from Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, we're really glad to have you, Lynn. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me to chat with you today. Great. Well, you know, for our podcast listeners, we really just want them uh, to be introduced to scholars, people in the field that are doing work that uh, maybe one day they're interested in doing. And so we're just trying to uh, maybe stoke the fire a little bit and, and help them understand what are people doing out there and, and, and access your work and, and hopefully benefit from your work. So, uh, But we first would love to hear your story. We'd love to hear you know, how you got to where you are today, maybe some of the influences that led you along the path of um, New Testament and early Christian scholarship, and uh, maybe some pivotal people, events, Texts, books, whatever. I mean, what? Tell us what, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. Well, I uh, fell in love with uh, the Bible as a in high school and came to Christ, came to faith at that time. Went on, and uh, my undergraduate degree is in religious studies, and I went straight from undergrad into a PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where I began my graduate work, and they had a degree in early Christianity. They didn't have a special degree in New Testament. But I really wanted to study the social and historical setting of Christianity. My undergrad degree was from a, um, a Christian school, Messiah College, and so I wanted to go to a secular university and kind of see how how they looked at scripture. And so that, that uh, I, I certainly saw that at Penn. It was a an excellent education from that standpoint. Um, and I did my dissertation on a homily, a Passover homily, by Melito of Sardis, who is a second century figure. And I looked at how he quotes the Old Testament. He has several Old Testament quotations and the textual variants that we find in, in those quotations. I... I appreciated the work that I needed to do in that, but that's not really my love. What I found I really loved was thinking about how Christians encountered their environment and how they impacted their environment, how their environment impacted them. In the case of my dissertation, I was very interested in Jewish-Christian relations. This homily is the first uh, that we know of, of a Christian saying that the Jews killed God. So it's strongly anti-Jewish, um, and, and it just prompted all kinds of questions for me that I didn't necessarily pursue extensively in the dissertation. The public, so my dissertation, the actual manuscript, deals a lot with the textual issues. The published version that uh, came out with Brown Judaic Studies, that looks a lot more at the relationship between Jews and Christians and how can we know about that and how much of how much of what Christians say is rhetoric and is trying to define their own boundaries or to distinguish one group of Christians from another group 
So you accuse one group of being Judaizers. They're, they're both Christian groups, right? But you accuse one of being Jewish-like as a way to put them down or distinguish yourself, right? And there, there may not be Jews at all being talked about. Or there actually may be real conversation with Jews. So I just find that a fascinating topic. It continues, I think, to be um, a, a topic even now as people wrestle with uh, the phrases, you know, the ways that never parted or the parting of the ways, you know, and there's kind of these two camps and you, you think through them. I think from there, uh, I began looking uh, at other kind of conflict areas or areas where boundaries were being stretched or, or boundaries were being drawn and, um, and looking at groups that um, what we might call marginalized or on the outskirts. So the, my second reader for my dissertation, Ross Kramer, who recently retired from Brown, um, she did her dissertation on women's religion in the Greco-Roman world. And she was very interested in Jewish and Christian women's experiences. And so I, that, that was kind of a natural um, other area to, for me to look at, just looking at social groups and how they engage. So I've continued to look at Christians um, and Jews, to, to look at women uh, who are Jewish and who are Gentile, who come into the church. And recently I've uh, finished a draft with um, a colleague of mine who's up at Gordon College, Amy Hughes, on Christian women in the second through the sixth centuries. I don't know exactly what the book's going to be called. It's with Baker Academic. And uh, so, you know, so I continue, I would say, for my, when I finished in the late 90s, my dissertation. So since then, I've just, I've been looking at, at groups, at the social world. That's what I find so interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful to hear. And maybe, maybe if you can, that's a, just a great segue. May, let's just talk a little bit more deeply about some of the works that you're either currently working on or have worked on. Um, maybe some of the works that are influential to you, like that you've really enjoyed writing that have helped shape your thinking as you've been writing. Right, right. Thank you. Yes, this, this project um, that I'm working on with Amy, uh, that was my basic project for my uh, sabbatical last year. And uh, it, it allowed me to explore the, the Jewish-Christian relations because I looked at the Maccabean martyrs. You have the mother and her seven sons. So I looked closely at the dynamics of martyrdom as it relates to motherhood. It seemed, you know, very opposite goals, right? To be a mother and to be a martyr. How do they fit together, right? And how, and how do the communities exalt the mother who is a martyr? Um, so that was a fascinating exploration. And of course, the early church saw the Maccabean martyrs as Christian martyrs. You know, there was, they were really incorporated into the church. So in this book, I, I look at Thecla, the proto-martyr, and think through um, just the, the rise of, a, of asceticism and those sorts of goals. And then I look at uh, Perpetua and Felicitas and that uh, writing, uh, I think, Perpetua's voice is in this in this account and so we rarely have a woman's voice preserved so it was interesting to look at uh, that work from from that perspective and then just how uh, themes of motherhood are very much a part of it or also being a daughter um, just the, the ways in which our average life roles and experiences uh, play out in this 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 uh, crucible of uh, martyrdom, which 
I realize, you know, not every third Christian was martyred uh, at this period, not, not at all. The threat was real, um, but there weren't that many actual martyrs. But they played such a role in, in identity shaping for the early church, and that was interesting to look at. And then I also looked at the catacombs, and I looked at um, music in the church, and just ways in which Christians were thinking about um, worship and liturgy, because I think that uh, we have a tendency at times when we think about the early church to imagine the, the synods or the, the councils, and then they make these decrees about who Jesus is, you know, totally God, totally man, boom, we're done, we go home, and then what happens, right? And instead of realizing, no, actually these, these uh, councils rise up from the church doing church stuff, worshiping together, thinking about Eucharist, meditating on the, the struggles of the martyrs, and thinking about, and, and the, the bishops who were at these councils were raised by, often by Christian moms, who took them to church, who were singing hymns to them, who, I mean, they're steeped in this, they're steeped in uh, going to the sites of um, the, the martyr sites, or uh, relics, uh, thinking about relics. I mean, so you, you don't have this kind of um, separation in the church of the intellectuals being kind of philosophical and then everybody else kind of superstitious and practical. It's, it's not that kind of layering. When you think about that, then, it, it, to me, really opens up opportunities to think about how did the church deal with slaves in their midst? It's not just a a New Testament issue, you're going to have slavery throughout. And especially after Constantine, you have a flood of wealth into the church. And often the wealthiest Christians were women. So you have, uh, you know, the, all the issues that come with money and materialism, like we deal with in the United States church. Um, you have that in the ancient church. And, and you've got these um, complex social settings that mix things up. And so I think uh, what, what our book hopes to show is how involved women were in the, the making and doing of Christianity. Even if they didn't take a vote at a council, they paid for the bishops to get there. They paid, you know, to sustain the bishop and his monastery or his church. And the bishop was actively writing letters with them or they were engaged in, like with Jerome and Paul, with the study of Hebrew. I mean, so the, the, the women had a very active part, even if it wasn't with a, an official title. And then, of course, you have the imperial family. Those women had political power, from Helena uh, and then on through uh, Constantine's mother. So there, there's just a lot, of, a lot of things going on, and it's fun to play with that and explore oh, yeah. that. Right. I also do commentaries, so okay. I'm also like okay. the normal, right. you know, New Testament, <laughs> right. you know, pay the bills kind of stuff. And, um, so the early Christians for fun. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And then there's the yeah. um, So recently finished a um, commentary on Philippians in the News Ondervan series, Story, uh, oh, yes. Story of God. Right. Uh, that's been really fun. I'm also on the editorial uh, team there, so I get to read all of the drafts that are uh, now in publication. And I have to say, it's just a great series. It, there's just great stuff. I love the approach of this uh, series because it, it it demands that 
35 to 40% of each section that you do is practical focus. So you are, it's, it's like you are speaking to the congregation or a congregation or you're thinking about how, where the rubber meets the road. And so it, it's meant to be a resource for uh, pastors and lay leaders who, you know, have no extra time at all. They can pull this off the shelf, really get a solid understanding of uh, the exegetical part. But then hopefully with the added, I hate to say application, it's kind of a live the story section, um, that uh, they it just hopefully will jumpstart even maybe some of their own ideas or be able to channel more specifically to their congregation. Mm. That's not as easy to do as it sounds. You know, I'm trained to do the exegetical part. I love living uh, vicariously in the first century. I mean, yeah. I love living now because I have flush <laughs> yeah. toilets and hot right. showers. So I'm not anxious to live back there. Right. But I like to visit, you right. know. Right. And, uh, but then doing the, how do, how, does, how do we do this today? That was really challenging, but it was fun too. And looking through the history of the church and seeing how Christians down through the ages or around the world today, how they wrestle with the text and, and try to live it out faithfully. So, yeah, so that was also actually really fun to do that commentary. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's really where I work, kind of in the social world or right in, in the biblical texts. Yeah, no, that's 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 helpful. Um, maybe if if you can, just you you hinted at it. So why why should we be interested in early Christianity? We have New Testament students that sometimes just focus on Matthew to Revelation and just work within canon texts. But you're doing something different. So why why the study of ancient Christianity? Maybe just give us a vision for what what that looks like. Well, I think today we recognize that everyone brings a perspective to the biblical text. So. The uh, emphasis on the global church, which I just am, I appreciate so much. We lived in Kenya for three years in the late 90s, and I learned so much from my Kenyan brothers and sisters in the Lord. I have blind spots. I have natural blind spots in going to the biblical text, things I don't see, and so I need the, the global church to help me see those. Well, you can extend that in, a, in an historical sense. When you go back and you look at the first century, second century Christians who are coming from families that are first or second generation Christians in a very hostile environment. What are they seeing in the biblical text that is so powerful to them? And, and in the same way, of course, we've got Christian communities around the world today who are facing a similar hostility. And, and could the early church maybe give us some tools to think with? I mean, we have martyrs today. Uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. What, what does that mean theologically, to die for your faith in a really direct way, or perhaps more horribly, see one of your family members killed? This was the experience of the early church. So they see things about who Jesus is and the faithfulness of God that I, I miss. Um, and there's something about their renunciation of wealth. There's something about their renunciation of this life that I think is useful for me to hear in my consumerist environment. I, I get, uh, you know, I just take so much for granted. Like, oh yeah, this is how it is. It's all this advertising and I gotta have a new outfit or I've gotta have, you know, the newest technology or whatever it, it may be. I'm just so used to that, I think it's natural. So the early church, I can read that and they, mm, actually it's, it's not. They faced, 
a pull towards wealth accumulation, um, towards social status. Uh, my work, we live in a celebrity culture right now. Uh, th there are some interesting parallels with the early church. How did they deal with these things? How did they wrestle with them? So I think it's actually very pertinent in terms of helping us exegete and then live out uh, scripture today. That's great. Yeah, well, uh, we really appreciate that perspective. And of course, you're speaking to our heart as well. So we just yeah. know that we're very much in agreement and um, hoping our listeners will gain much from that as well. But uh, what I would love to do is just shift gears a little bit, similar topic, but uh, I would love to hear just your life as a teacher in the classroom and uh, what shapes you, what has shaped you and, and what are your your goals in the classroom when you step in, uh, working with students, what are some things that you try to uh, implement in the classroom or, or just ideas that maybe consistently you're always trying to get across and shape students' minds and, and affections and things like that. So, yeah, we'd just love to hear your life as a teacher uh, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, there's always, for me, a temptation to do content dump. I love the ideas, I love getting into the details, and, and so I can think about content dump, and I have to, I think, watch against that. I, I have to give enough space for students to do active learning, and I'm not uh, always aware of that. You know, I can just keep talking, then I look at my watch, oh my word, sorry guys, you know, we just went right past our little break time. Um, so I think that that is something I... I need to continually remind myself of because they're going to learn what they figure out on their own. Um, secondly, um, and this would be in contentious issues like uh, authority of women in the church and that kind of stuff uh, today, I, I can exegete the passages, the contested passages, I can show uh, the various views and I think it's very important that I show all those views. I, I really, I don't see my role as uh, an advocate. I want to lay things out for them and help them see how people arrived at conclusions and then what are some of the ramifications of those conclusions. But when that's all said and done, I, I inform the students. I say, you know, I, I'll present an idea to you. I'll present an idea to you, but you actually are not going to change your mind based on evidence. I say to the students that the evidence um, is there, but you're actually probably not going to be convinced in terms of, let's say, the women's role uh, in the church by the actual text because these decisions happen at a much more visceral level. They happen at an experiential level and we don't need to apologize for that. You're going to be influenced by important men and women in your lives as you come to this conclusion and, and you're going to you're going to think that you came to this in a rational kind of way that you sorted things out but studies show that that's actually not how it happens always and so I don't feel a burden to try and change your mind one way or another, but just to give you the evidence and, and let you sit with that. Um, and, and that's kind of freeing also for me. So I, I'm not trying to, I think as a teacher, I'm not trying to convince one way or another. Probably where I advocate the mo though, let me, let me back up. I might advocate in as much as I will say, look, I think the evangelical understanding of scripture is defensible in this day and age where you have strong uh, pushback from the wider academy, I do want my students to know that there is a, a legitimate, academically viable um, response to, to that uh, evangelicalism 
is academically supportable. They may, at the end, not hold that, um, but I don't want them, you know, to read some Newsweek article that comes out at Christmas or Easter, you know, about Mary or this new thought of Jesus, as though that's something new and it shakes their faith. I say, look, there's there's answers to these things that evangelicals have thought about. So in that sense, I kind of do play a role, I think, as an advocate for evangelicalism, broadly speaking. But in terms of those questions that evangelicals disagree between themselves, I try to just lay things out. And that's how I would see my role as a teacher. Yeah, well, that's very helpful. Um, you know, and also thinking about uh, your role as a as a female scholar in this world, um, in a sense, a, minor, a minority among scholars. Um, how do you feel like your voice um, shapes your scholarship as you enter in conversations with other scholars? Um, do you feel like uh, you're able to participate well? And you know, just thinking of our own context, uh, you know, there's uh, I mean, it's, it's it's still a minority voice within the within the scholarship, and uh, always trying to encourage that voice to come out as much as possible. And we're we're privileged to sit under uh, men who who value that and, and want to encourage that uh, as best they can. Uh, but yeah, could you just give us your perspective on that and, and sure. how that has maybe shaped and, and, and guided your scholarship? Well, it's funny. I, I, I have a couple of different responses sometimes yes. when I'm asked this question. If I'm feeling kind of goofy, I'll say, <laughs> well, you know, so how does it feel to be a female uh, little scholar? And I say, well, a little different from when I was a male. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I have, I've never existed in that other space. So yeah, I, yeah. I've always just been me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, What's fun is because my name doesn't have an E on the end, it's Lynn without an E, because my parents didn't want me to be Linny. They were very firm, like your name is Lynn, right? Which is a male spelling. So I've been at places, including an ETS, a couple of years ago where I was on a panel, and the person running the panel had never met me, that we had corresponded uh, you know, with all the panelists and stuff. So when I walked up to get ready to sit down, he kind of looked at me like, oh, and who are you? So, oh, I'm Lynn. Oh, ah. So, and I didn't think that much yeah. of it, right? Because I, whatever. I mean, I just sat down. I didn't know what was going on in his mind. Later, he wrote and apologized and said, I, I can't remember what all I said, like in the email, but I'm sure I said like, hi guys, you know, and just went on. Well, guys to me can be a generic term. So I didn't pick it up. I didn't realize that he thought I was male. Well, that leads to, uh, it can be, that can be a plus or a minus, it can be a plus in that you think, oh, good. So I was as rational and objective and whatever other you know masculine characteristic you put on that. I sounded academic, right? Um, which means, conversely, that I didn't sound feminine, which is, that's the downside of it, right? Uh, but for me, I just think, well, I'm a scholar. I'm, I'm, you can evaluate, evaluate my scholarship and decide where it's lacking and where it might be beneficial and just kind of leave it at that. But I know that uh, all of us bring our em embodied existence to our scholarship. So I'm not just a woman, I am a white woman and I come from an upper middle class family and I, you know you can just kind of go to I'm married, I uh, have two children. Uh, they're adult children now, but I mean, I, you know, I, there's a lot about me that enters the text. If men would realize that that also happens with them, that they're not doing this abstract scholarship, they're doing scholarship from a particular perspective, socioeconomic, racial, um, uh, 
yeah, whatever, you know, that that I think would uh, maybe minimize the, the sense of like, oh, wow, Lynn's doing something new. No, Lynn's just being a scholar like you are. So we're all coming from a particular um, perspective that way. It's a double-edged sword in that um, I know that I'm asked to do things in part so that they can say, hey, we got a woman on the panel, or we've got a woman doing this, or, you know, on the poster, there's a woman, so that you kind of feel good. But you got to start somewhere, right? So I realize, okay, I could be the token woman. All right. But what do I do with that opportunity? So hopefully I'll hit the ball out of the park every once in a while. You know, I get this opportunity that I realize maybe uh, male colleagues wouldn't have had. I get that, but then I have to do something with it. So if I just swing and a miss a lot of times, eventually I won't get uh, get asked, even if I could provide the token woman uh, position. So, so I think you, you do kind of wonder, you know, you say to yourself, am I asked just because I'm a woman? That always is in the background. And so you kind of can doubt yourself at times or some women can, can play that. I don't know if men feel that way or not, but that that can kind of come up. And you just kind of say, well, whatever, I'll take it and, and run with it and hopefully, you know, learn from it and be a blessing. Yeah, no, that's 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 great, and just uh, just super appreciative of you and being able to hear hear that voice and and hopefully our listeners are encouraged by that as well. Uh, but if we can, we'd just like to ask maybe one more question as we as we wrap up here. And and one of the one of the things that we just have a vision for is trying to help students and ha- try to help junior scholars that are trying to trying to make their way through the field and and really try to find an identity there and really their niche. And uh, so let's say you have a student, couple students, male, female, before you, and uh, they have an open ear to you. You have two minutes with them. Uh, what would you leave them with? These are graduate students who want to get into the, our field. Yeah, sure. Either either students that are maybe pursuing PhDs or they've already graduated PhDs, still trying to navigate their, their academic identity. Wow, yeah. And the academic landscape is uh, changing and it's also very tight. Uh, so it's hard to get jobs. Um, I would I would say a couple of things. Continue writing in whatever venue that you can, but don't lose that that writing. Um, and be open um, to how God might be using your education, um, and uh, and and allow. We, we live in an instant kind of culture, um, but our field is not an instant field. Uh, think about things in chunks of five years about how you will grow and and grow into yourself this is not a field that is an instant field um, when I was in graduate school I said to the Lord this is your degree this is this is for you right and and I thought that I meant it and it took me a long time um, while I started three years of classwork and then uh, another eight years writing the dissertation had my two kids during that time and also was teaching extensively so I wouldn't recommend that path I think it would have been better for me to back off from teaching a little bit and try and get the dissertation done sooner but on the other hand I was maturing as all of this was happening maturing in my in my thoughts so anyway uh, at the end of all of this we feel a call by the Lord to go to Kenya I finally have my degree in hand. I'm finally ready to go out and get what I've been working for for the, this decade or longer. And, and I just was saying, I said, Lord, you know, are you sure you want this? Whatever. And he said, oh, 
excuse me, Lynn, didn't you say that this degree was mine? <laughs> and I realized, okay, what I actually was saying was this degree is yours, God, um, in to use in uh, a teaching role. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't like, oh, you mean this can be yours to put on the shelf? I had never thought that I would get my degree and then it would be put on the shelf. Yeah, and... Uh, and so we went to Kenya, and I had no teaching post. As it ended up, uh, an opportunity opened to teach at Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology, which is now AIU, Africa uh, International University. And it was fantastic, absolutely a blessing. I, I'm so thankful for it. It was just professionally and personally very challenging, and, and um, it was a great honor for me to be there. But it wasn't the path I would have chosen. And, and I think... Uh, to, to continue to keep your hands open to what the Lord has for you in this process and enjoy the process. As my mom's advice as I started the program, enjoy the process. And uh, I went back to that many times. That's, that was very good advice. Well, thank you for that perspective, and I hope that uh, will bless somebody as they're considering this. It's blessed me, just thinking through that. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that same thought of the, the Lord, this is yours, but, you know, yeah. maybe. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's, a, that's a temptation we need to guard ourselves against. So I appreciate you highlighting that. Uh, so we just want to say thank you. Thank you for yeah, your time you. here today, uh, and uh, we uh, pray blessings on your scholarship. And we look forward to the books that are coming out and hopefully reviewing those and, uh, yeah, promoting those on uh, the Ancient Christian Studies website and uh, through our other means, uh, the journal as well. So Great. Thank you very much. It was delightful to chat with you. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. We'll see you soon.